All right, you got your camera? You got a bag? You ready to go? Jump on in. We're heading down the road. My name's April, and I'm an award-winning landscape photographer and tour guide. I've been leading small group photo tours for over 20 years. For photographers, non-photographers, and anyone else that just likes to go for a great trip. So welcome to my podcast, Eyes for the Road. All right, thanks for joining me. Thanks for listening. Hope you all enjoyed Thanksgiving and are ready to move into the new season. Some of you have already got winter weather out there. There's some wonderful places to go photographing for winter. You've got the national parks such as Yosemite, which is fairly accessible. You've got Yellowstone National Park. Check their websites. Um, some of the roads are closed to single vehicles, but in Yellowstone, you do you can take the snowcats, basically a big snowmobile, into the park, see the geysers, lots of wildlife, just beautiful places. And generally in the winter season, there are less people, but ample opportunities for some different types of photography. Well, I did go to Duluth, as I mentioned in an earlier podcast earlier in the year, and in my trip to Duluth, I was lucky enough to hook up with a local photographer, as I like to do. I think it's important to find someone local that knows the area, knows some great spots when you haven't had time to research the area or spend a lot of time there. A local photographer and a photography guide are going to go know the best times of day and if you're interested in a certain type of photography, whether it's wildlife or people or sporting events, these are great contacts. So I would highly recommend seeking someone out like this. So today I'm honored and excited to introduce you to Dawn LaPointe, who's a free range photographer is how she likes to describe herself. No additives, no preservatives, no extra colors. She loves nature, has had a lot of great things happen with her photography. In fact, in 2016, her video, Lake Superior Ice Stacking, went viral, was millions of views. It was featured on the Weather Channel. So she'll tell us what ice stacking is, if that's something new to you, a new phenomenon, as well as she had an image accepted into the Smithsonian and has had multiple images published in magazines such as Backpacker, uh, nature's best photography and many others. So let's get into the interview with Don Lapointe. Um, again, I'm going to apologize ahead of time for the audio and appreciate you listening. Appreciate any feedback that you put on iTunes. And let's get into the interview. Thanks. And Dawn's in Minnesota, so um, let's go ahead and get started. Um, Don, tell us. Um, First of all, what's the weather like in Minnesota today? Actually, the sun is out today, which is a little unusual for November. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you for joining us. So tell us about your journey into photography. Well, I received my first camera as a gift from my parents when I was a young girl. I vividly remember this bright red Polaroid-style camera, um, and I shot with a variety of pretty easy-to-use cameras, Canon snappies and whatnot as I was um, as I was growing up. And then uh, fast forward to 2007, I purchased my first digital camera, which was just a, a Canon point-and-shoot, but it had a lot of 
capabilities. Um, and then in 2009, I um, met Gary Fiddler, who ended up, we, we were dating and he ended up mentoring me in photography. He had been doing photography for probably 20 years at that time with film cameras and had recently switched to digital cameras. So he greatly shortened my learning curve with the technical yeah. side of photography and helped me to see things through someone else's eyes. And um, we enjoy lots of nature trips together out in the wilderness or nearby Lake Superior where we live. Um, so he he was a great mentor to me when I was learning the more complicated technical side of, of digital cameras. Did you take any, did you have any um, background um, prior, like in art or graphics or other Actually, than... My, my creative outlet had been music in my years growing up. Oh, wow. Uh, I played piano and saxophone and did a little bit of vocal. So I had a very strong music background, which is, you know, another means of artistic expression. But I've also had a, a real... Um, deep love for nature and have been very conservation-minded my whole life. So photography has become not just an artistic expression, but also a way for me to express our need to conserve and preserve the natural resources and beings that are on our earth. Yes, I, I agree. So when did you kind of start the Radiant Spirit Gallery? Um, actually, in late 2009 and 2010, Gary had expressed his longtime desire to have a photography business, and I helped him form it. And um, in 2010, we got married, and we just continued uh, working on the business together and enjoying photography um, in in all kinds, all all four seasons, and all kinds of weather. Oh, exactly. <laughs> I know. Yeah, Minnesota does. It, it offers just a, a range of seasons. Um, and I would say it's so exciting. Um, one of Don's videos is a, is a phenomenon called ice stacking that the Weather Channel featured in 2016. And I think that just really brought a lot of attention to the area and to your photography. So. Talk to us about the video, what ice stacking is, the whole <laughs> story behind that. Sure, sure. Well, living by Lake Superior, we get to enjoy quite a variety of winter weather phenomena. And one of my favorites is ice stacking. When we have sufficient ice on the lake and it becomes disconnected from the shoreline um, by wind and waves, it starts moving and inevitably it's going to hit another shoreline. And when it does that, it starts breaking and stacks up. It's almost like shuffling a deck of cards is kind of how I liken it. Um, but it's just, it's just an amazing phenomenon. If you're on the shore with the ice incoming, it's very loud and you can't help but get immersed and mesmerized by, by what you're seeing. Wow. Um, I, I had seen and filmed the phenomena quite a few times before this one that went viral, but it, it was quite, quite a ride to have a viral <laughs> video and, um, and, but yet really fun to have attention brought to this beautiful region and maybe a better appreciation for winter and, and the treasures that people can enjoy if they just dress properly and go outside. Right, exactly. So there are certain conditions kind of that, you know, would prompt you to 
go outside to kind of watch for the phenomena or, you know, is it something you just kind of know certain months and happen to go out just to check or? I'm always, especially in the wintertime, I'm always monitoring the forecast and the conditions. I like to know the wind direction, the temperature. I keep an eye on some of our shorelines in Duluth where I enjoy shooting and um, it, it was going to be a a beautiful sunrise. So I went out to, I started at Park Point and shot sunrise with these massive ice dunes that had formed uh, with the waves and ice coming onto the, the sandy shoreline. And then I worked my way toward Canal Park. And uh, while I was trying to do some macro work with ice on the shoreline in Canal Park, I noticed it was pulling away from shore. Oh, my God. I felt the wind at my back, and I thought, it's time to go out to the other location where this, the ice is probably going to be hitting shore soon. So I, I drove across town, and sure enough, the ice stacking had started, and I plopped down my tripods and enjoyed the show. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's just so exciting. And it does, it just it highlights, like you said, there's, you know, all the, the joys of the different seasons and, and getting out to take advantage of that. Yes, yes, and we have four four distinct seasons here, and I think winter... To me, winter is the most dramatic and fun. It's also the most challenging to shoot in because besides having tricky footing, because we have a lot of ice along the shoreline um, and maybe deep snow to trudge through, um, but, you know, I, I like to go out in sub-zero weather because the conditions, the, the scenery is very dramatic and dynamic uh, when we get these cold temperatures. And the lake changes the scenery every day. There's no two days the ice is in the same position it can be stacked up one day and the next day it could be completely gone from the shore. Oh my gosh. Just being, you know, washed, um, taken away by wind and waves. So it's, um, you never see the same thing twice. Wow. You also do a lot of, um, as you mentioned, like backcountry camping and being out in the wilderness areas. Do you find you prefer the animals or just the landscapes and scenery? Kind of what is your specialty, would you say? Really, I love it all. Um, <laughs> I I love seeing the detail in flora and fauna, getting in there with my macro camera and capturing the artistic detail in whether it's a showy lady slipper or moss and lichen. Um, I love that world. I love the big scenery. Um, I enjoy seeing wildlife come across our path when we're canoeing in the wilderness. Um I, I really like it all. I think kind of what what we've been known for then, what's a little bit unique about our photography are the canoescapes mm-hmm. that we capture up in the Boundary Waters and Quetico Provincial Park because um, I think we're hopefully capturing and conveying the sense of solitude and um, kind of a timelessness or being suspended in time amidst all the beauty in the wilderness. Um, and the other thing I think we're fairly known for is the winter photography on Lake Superior. Um, it's just very dramatic and dynamic. And I think when a person, especially a photographer, when they get to know an area really well, they can better anticipate what conditions might come together for a certain shot that they're looking for. Um, and even though they might go out expecting to get a certain shot, nature might present something um, totally different that they're that, that they treasure even more 
than what they were anticipating. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think a lot of people tend to, I don't know why, but you're right. I think winter is sometimes the season that, that sometimes kind of has, at least in the past, you know, you see a lot of amazing spring photography, a lot of fall photography, but you know, winter is kind of still kind of, I would, I don't know. I, I still think it's a little, not as many photographers out there doing it. <laughs> Definitely. Yes. I don't see nearly as many photographers out in the wintertime as in the summertime <laughs> for, for good reason. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there are, um, you know, you've got the challenges of that. So what are some winter photography tips that you would share? Because it is important to be prepared. Right. Well, first, you want to make sure that you're preparing yourself to be comfortable and warm, you know, relatively speaking, as, as warm as you can be. So dress in layers. Um, I personally even like to layer my my glove wear. Um, I'll wear a, a neoprene glove inside a plunge mitt, which is a really thick fleece mitt um, that, that also blocks the wind. But that way I can take one of my hands out of the mitt and mm-hmm. have the dexterity to still um, operate the different buttons on my camera. Um, and then if it's sub-zero, I may also put a couple hand warmers in each glove because it's just, you know, 20 degrees below and a wind on top of it is, it's a challenge to keep warm. <laughs> yeah, I, so, I mean, Lake Superior does get quite a bit of extreme weather. It does, yes. So, so primarily make sure you're you're comfortable because then you'll be able to focus better and think better on uh, on your photography process. And then, as far as gear goes, um, make sure you take spare batteries and keep the spares in a pocket that's going to get some of your body heat. Um, and you'll notice if you're out shooting in cold temperatures that the the life of your batteries seems to get drained faster when you yeah. when you use the camera. So once you put your spare your warm spare battery in the camera, put that other used battery back in the warm pocket, and you'll actually regain some of that juice when it gets warm, and you can use it again later if you need it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, another tip is to watch for condensation on your lens. Um, if you happen to get some snowflakes on your lens, don't blow it off because you'll just make your lens wet. <laughs> so take a, a soft, clean cloth and just brush it off or, you know, use a soft mitten and brush it off. <clears throat> and um, also when you go from a cold temperature outdoors to coming indoors, I would recommend removing your memory card from the camera first and then place your camera in a Ziploc bag and then bring it in into your house or studio. Um, that'll prevent condensation from forming on your lens and inside your camera, which could do damage to it. Oh, wow. Um, so you just let it slowly acclimate them to the temperature difference, and it should be fine. Yeah, that is that is some really good information. I might not have realized those tips, because it would be bad to get the condensation inside your the digital cameras, especially. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what are you, do you feel are some of the challenges be, of working for yourself? I'd say the biggest challenge is marketing. Yeah. <laughs> most, most photographers enjoy the art of photography and being creative and, and being outdoors. But then there's the business side where you need to do the marketing and wearing so many hats. 
because many of us are do-it-yourselfers and maybe the business isn't big enough yet to hire people to help out. So I, I think that's the challenge is trying to balance the time to be able to get out and, and shoot and create, which is really at the core core of the oh, business. Of course. And yet maintaining the business side of things. Yeah, that that is. On the gallery side, um, has it been helpful to have like the online gallery? Um, whereas in the past, you know, most people had to do like brick and mortar or art shows. Yes, we enjoy having the online gallery because we're reaching people far from our local market where we would have had a brick and mortar gallery. Um, so we reach people from around the country and especially with social media where, you know, there's an international audience um, that, that follows along and appreciates the photography. Um, so yeah, the online presence is really great. And then we're not tied down to a physical brick and mortar location, having to staff that and having greater overhead. Oh, exactly. So I think for photographers, the digital age is a really beneficial thing. Yes, it definitely is. I I looked at your gallery. You've got some incredible images, just like you said, the series for the Boundary Waters. And I believe that's really important. You said a lot of part of your mission is, you know, these areas and trying to save them. And one of your photographs was juried into the Smithsonian. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that image and, you know, the whole excitement of getting selected for the Smithsonian? Oh, sure. I had learned about an opportunity for a call for artists to submit photographs that were taken in wilderness areas in the United States. Um, they were planning to do a special exhibit at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C., and the exhibit was called Wilderness Forever, and it was commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Wilderness Act, which, of course, is what protects all of these, these public wilderness areas uh, for people to enjoy. Mm-hmm. So I had submitted a few photos that I had captured up in the Boundary Waters and was shocked to get a voicemail message saying that one of my photos had been chosen to be on display in the exhibit and was awarded first place in the People and Wilderness category. And the photo that they chose was, it's called Sunset Paddle, and it's a beautiful sunset that we experienced on the Kuishri River in the Boundary Waters, and my husband is in silhouette in a canoe on the river, and that picture happened to be taken on our honeymoon. People don't know about it. Yeah, that does actually have a lot of extra special meaning, because <laughs> the sunset, it is, if, you know, go look on her, your on, um, the Radiant Spirit Gallery, it's on there, and it is, it's just a stunning image, and it just conveys so much with the sky, and seeing the canoe, and, and the solo individual, but oh wow, that is... <laughs> <laughs> So in, uh, we, while the exhibit was going on, we took a road trip and drove down to Washington, D.C., and were able to see the exhibit. And it was, it was an amazing bunch of photographs that they had gathered from all around the U.S. It was roughly 50 photographs, and our, the sunset paddle image was printed just huge in the 40 by 60 wow. on the wall. So it was, it was pretty exciting to to see that and so happy to have Minnesota's wilderness represented in such a great exhibit. Oh yeah. And and to bring additional attention to an area that again, I, you know, the uh, boundary waters is kind of one of the lesser visited, you know, areas in the park system, I believe. No, actually it's one of the most visited. Oh, is it? 
My yes. gosh. <laughs> yes, they have a very large number of visitors each year. Um, it's, it's just the, the more diehard people that aren't road tripping. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. And I suppose, too, right, it's more remote. So, you know, yeah. most people, wow, that's good to know. Because <laughs> I, I guess being from California, I hear always about Yosemite and overcrowding at Yellowstone. But I suppose when you have more space and the people that are out there are camping. And <laughs> right, right. Yes, it's one of the most visited wilderness areas in the U.S. But when, when you're out there, it doesn't feel like it. It's, I think, something like a million acres. Wow. So there's many, many lakes and rivers that people can do their primitive camping on and, and canoe and portage. And um, so you, you, don't, you don't get the feeling of it being overcrowded because there's such a large area and so many entrances that people can go into. Yeah, it border does it overlap Canada or just border Canada then technically? It goes up to the Canadian border and then north of the Canadian border it's called Quetical Provincial Park. So it, I kind of think of it like the, the Canadian boundary waters. Mm. So it's mm-hmm. Basically a continuation and with the proper permits you can canoe across the Canadian border and go venture into Quetico, um, again, doing primitive camping and, and whatnot, as long as you have the right permits. Right. What do you think your favorite seasons are to do the camping and visit some of these spots? Boy, for our canoe country trips, definitely the fall, I'd say September and October, mm-hmm. because by then there are even fewer people out. They call it the shoulder seasons. Uh, there are fewer people out there, very few pesky bugs to worry about. The temperatures are comfortable, so if you have a lot of gear to lug on the portages like we do, it's usually not much of a problem. Um, and, of course, the the fall foliage makes it just spectacular. And on cooler mornings, there's fog on the water. Oh, wow. So you get beautiful sunrises, and it starts to get dramatic. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that does. That sounds incredible. So are there still places that you would like to go photograph that are kind of on your wish list? Oh, definitely. I'd love to see a lot more national parks. Um, Iceland, of course, which is really busy with photographers, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be at the top of the list right now. I don't, it's just it, getting a lot of attention. <laughs> it does, right? So it's one of those places you have to go visit with that in mind that you're just going to have to deal with a lot of people and a lot of other photographers if you want to enjoy the natural treasures that Iceland has to offer. Um, and Costa Rica is has always been on my bucket list, too. Um, this past spring, we took a, a nice three-week road trip out to the West Coast and um, visited the California Redwoods, Northern oh, California yeah. Redwoods, which uh-huh. has been on both of our bucket lists since we were children. So it was a real treat to see that treasure and visit um, many areas of Oregon. It was a really wonderful trip. Oh, good. Wonderful. So if you could go photographing with someone, living or dead, which <laughs> is an interesting thought, um, who would who would it be and why? I don't know if I could choose just one person. There are so many photographers whose work I admire. Um, Jim Brandenburg is definitely a top one. He's an incredible nature photographer with a you know a very full successful career. Um, but when I look at his photographs, I can just feel that connection to nature 
mm-hmm. the feeling of being suspended in time. Um, so he's, uh, it would be quite an honor to shoot with him at some point. And he's such a grounded person too, and really appreciates nature. Um, I think Art Wolf is probably another one at the top of my list. I appreciate his artistic eye and his enthusiasm for teaching others. And for wildlife photography, I would love to shoot with Melissa Gru. Um, in in addition to her being an incredible wildlife photographer, she has a vast knowledge of her subjects. Plus, she's a champion for conservation and ethics in photography. Oh, wow. Um, another another photographer would be Paul Ziska. He, he creates stunning adventure photography in cold climates and at night. I've seen many amazing photos from the Banff area that he has Ooh, created. Yeah. And then in the macro world, I love Don Kamarechka's snowflake macros. He does an incredible job. Yeah, the snowflakes. I, I mean, that's just, that's just, I've seen some of those too, and they're just amazing. Do you spend much time on post-processing, Don? Most of our post-processing is done in Adobe Lightroom. We we don't we don't spend a lot of time processing. We try to maximize our camera gear when we're out in the field. Mm-hmm. I'd rather not spend more time in front of the computer than I need to. So if I can get the best picture possible out in the field, then that's less time that I have to spend editing um, when we get back to the studio. Um, most of our, aside from the monochrome photos that I do, the photos are, I like to say that they're natural and organic with no additives or artificial colors. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we're not, we're not going in and artistically enhancing our photos in Photoshop and some photographers do that and that's purely their artistic choice. Right. Um, but we choose to keep things natural looking. We edit them in Lightroom. Um, and then if we're editing something for monochrome, I love using the NetSilver FX Pro software. Mm-hmm. So talk to me a little bit about storage because, um, you know, we both kind of started in a film world where you had a physical item that you had to store, like a slide, a chrome, a negative. But now with everything being digital, um, what do you do about storage? Uh, multiple external hard drives. So I'm, I work off an external hard drive um, when I'm processing, and I also have backups of the hard drive, and the backups are stored in a safe. So hopefully if, if there was a disaster, at least one copy of everything would be preserved. Do you do any um, cloud storage at all? A little bit, not so much for storage purposes, but for convenience purposes. Okay. If, if we're transferring photos to some of our magazine clients, for example, we put those in the cloud and they can download the photos from there. But we don't we don't use it so much for storage. I, I think just the, it seems like it would be an exorbitant cost because of the, the sheer volume of yeah. media that we would be uploading to the cloud. Oh, that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you've got some, I mean, just some amazing images and 
you know, that's just it. I, I know in California, we've had the fires and, you know, things happen suddenly. So I think people need to be thinking about, you know, not just having one place to put their put their images as such, but to consider maybe, you know, if it's an important image, places to back it up. Right. And actually, we've recently been talking about having an extra copy in off-site storage, too. Oh, have you? Yeah. Yep. Yep. So I think that's something that we'll probably be doing in the new year. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's a, it's a job. I mean, because I personally just recently, um, I have a, a couple external hard drives and I moved some pictures to it. And, oh, my gosh, it was just clumsy, dropped the hard drive and, you know, quit working. So, <laughs> so now I'm like, all right, do I go to the expense of getting these pulled off? Or, you know, hopefully, you know, some of the cards I hadn't deleted. So, yeah, I think it brings to mind people need to think about their options. <laughs> right, right. And digital media has a lifespan, too. Those external hard drives, we don't expect them to have an indefinite lifespan. So I think periodically we need to transfer um, the files from old media onto new external hard drives just to make sure that that it's going to be saved in a place that's going to continue to function. Right. That is That is super true. So it's about that time in the show, in the program, where I'd like to ask, what's in your camera bag? And I imagine you probably have multiple types of bags, depending on season. I may be right or wrong, but share with us the, the camera bodies and lenses, some of the, your tools that you like to use. Oh, sure. So when I'm not on a wilderness trip, um, I keep what I'd call a grab-and-go backpack, mm-hmm. which has standard equipment that I can count on needing for pretty much any shoot. And then if if I'm going on a shoot where I think I'm going to need a a specific type of lens, I can always swap that out. But what I always keep ready to go in the the grab-and-go backpack is a Canon D, uh, Canon 5D Mark III. Mm -hmm. And I typically have the 24 to 70 L lens mounted on that. And I also carry a Canon 70D and typically have a Canon 70 to 300 lens mounted on that. Um, I use a Manfrotto tripod with the slip levers and the pistol grip, uh, a variety of Singray filters, and of course the little uh, little items like cable releases, extra batteries, memory cards. I use a Rode microphone. Always carry a couple rain sleeves and a headlamp and flashlight and a soft cloth for cleaning my lenses. Yeah. And then some of the optional gear, if I'm going on a specialized shoot, if I think I'm going to run across something that's going to inspire me to take macro photos, I would take along my 100-millimeter macro lens, a 14-millimeter ultra-wide angle. I have an IR camera, an infrared inverted camera that's a Canon 60D. Um, and that's, I like to shoot with that when, you know, in the, in the middle of the daytime when a lot, a lot of photographers avoid shooting, yeah. but that can actually be a good time to shoot infrared. Uh, you've got a higher contrast situation and can get some pretty dramatic photos in midday with infrared then. Um, also a, digit, a dedicated video camera, although I often shoot a lot of video with my DSLR cameras too and some external audio equipment. 
And I also have a Canon G15 point-and-shoot camera with waterproof housing, which is oh, really wow. great when we're getting those the storms with big waves and lots of spray coming onto shore. It's a safe way to take photo and video. Yeah. <laughs> and then in the in the summertime or the the soft water seasons, um, if I'm on a canoe trip, my gear is stowed in waterproof pelican cases. So besides having a safe waterproof waterproof case, it also provides um, some rugged protection for when we're walking on the the portage trails and you know maybe bumping into tree trunks or rocks sticking up or whatever. Oh yeah, and putting it in the canoe too. Because do you take? So what would you say you take when you go camping and stuff? Um, I fill two pelican cases. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't travel light because photography is kind of at the core of what we do on our wilderness trips. So we want to make sure that we have what we need out there. And usually everything earns its keep um, as far as the photography of gear goes. We yeah. usually use everything we bring along. So I, I would have most of this gear with me. Oh, my God. Trip. Yeah. Well, that's what it takes, like you said. So. It does, it does. I wouldn't want to be out there thinking, oh, if I only had this lens with me, I could have gotten this awesome shot. And, you know, you you can make some substitute lenses, but it's like if you've got a favorite lens to capture a certain subject, I want to have it handy. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, this is true. I mean, that, that, you've, you've made that, I mean, to get the kind of images that you get, you know, it takes patience, I think, and it takes, as you said, being prepared. It's, I think sometimes, you know, people that have, you know, that are traveling or kind of new to photography, I, I hear this, it's like, oh, you know, I can go get that. But they don't realize sometimes the number of times that you may have gone out each morning, um, you know, watching different, the sun and seeing the, the phenomena to actually right. get that kind of amazing shot it just or or being out in the wilderness and not realizing how many days of overcast or rain that we had to get through before right. there was this beautiful scene <laughs> right exactly exactly so how many memory cards would you take um because you just spent was it three weeks you said um this fall on a wilderness trip uh, yeah, it, it was an 18-day wilderness canoe trip, and we went in through the north end of Quetico Provincial Park in Canada, and and shot in an, or traveled and shot in an area that was mostly new to both of us. Um, boy, I couldn't tell you how many how many memory cards did I take? I, maybe I don't know, maybe ten or twelve. But we oh, also wow. take we also take uh, when we're on a longer trip like that, we'll have a a small notebook computer and an external hard drive. Mm-hmm. So that if we are getting a lot of footage and files, we can actually download it off of our camera cards onto the external hard drive and then clear our camera cards to shoot some more. Yeah, I have to ask because I've not I've not camped out in the wilderness. But as far as like, you know, because all the gear now, you got to recharge batteries, you got to like power up everything. Um, you know, you're like your cell phone. Uh, how do you do you actually have to take them like up? a portable power source of some kind or? Yes, we do. We actually have some really nice solar panels that we take along and we charge um, a larger battery, like a, 
large lithium battery, or we've done, we've taken a, um, I guess called a lead, lead cell, lead acid battery. Uh-huh. We'll, we'll leave home with that charged up and with all of our camera batteries charged up. And then as we run out of juice, then um, we recharge it with the lead acid or, or the big lithium battery. And then as that gets lower on power, we'll recharge that with the solar panel. So we're, we're typically, we, we, we haven't run into many situations where we've had problems managing power. Well, that's good because, I mean, that ultimately you need the batteries to operate the cameras and so yep. forth. Yep, you just have to have, to have a plan, plan in place <laughs> before you go out there to make sure you've, you've got your power covered. Um, what did you see on your trip this time that kind of surprised you since it was a new area? I saw my first bull moose. Oh, wow. That was exciting. I've seen cows and calves before, but have never seen a, a bull moose. And we were canoeing toward a river mouth, and I saw a moose in the distance on the shoreline, and he ended up swimming across this narrow part of the lake from one river mouth to the oh. So we actually got photos and video of him crossing this narrow section of the lake. So that, that was pretty exciting. That is. That's exciting. Yeah, I think that was the highlight of the trip. Yeah. <laughs> and then just some, some really neat geology, too. The, just the natural rock formations in some areas is really stunning. Um, yeah, and, and we had one beautiful campsite that had um, rock tripe, just the most rock tripe I've ever seen. Um, and it, we were in a, happened to be traveling when there was a lot of rain, rainy days, and the rock tripe was just dripping with rain, and it was, it was beautiful. Oh, wow, yeah. Oh, my goodness. And you've also experienced the, nor- the Northern Lights, because I do see you have some images of the Northern Lights in Minnesota. Yes, and that's another great thing about going out to the wilderness, is you get rid of most of that light pollution from nearby cities. Um, so, yeah, we, my husband likes to get up in the middle of the night and check the skies to see if it's cloudy or clear, see what the moon's doing, what the stars look like. And once in a while, we're treated to northern lights on our fall trips. Mm. So, yeah, that's that's really exciting to see that show in person. Yeah, that is exciting. And, and the colors that you actually capture, I think, you know, we don't always think that the, the lights dip as low as they can at various times, depending on the solar activity. And the the technology and the cameras can actually capture the northern lights better than what our eyes see. So in addition to the color being more vibrant because it's a little longer exposure photo, the technology in the cameras is, is more advanced than our eyes mm-hmm. detect. So when you see the pictures of the northern lights, that's why it doesn't always quite look the same as it would with the naked eye. Yeah, and I think that's something that's a little bit deceiving for for some people, because they see these images on the internet, but me too. I saw I, I went out to Alaska to see the Northern Lights, and the same thing. It it takes a while to kind of train your eye where you start to see, but the camera actually is picking up just a much wider wider range of colors. Yes. Mm-hmm. Than the than your naked eye can see. So, what are some future projects that you have in the works? I see you have a couple beautiful calendars on your website for sale. Are those still available? Yes, yes, they are. Um, 
we were excited to offer two different designs this year. One of them is devoted to inspirations from canoe country, and the other is devoted to our inspirations from the Lake Superior region. Um, and they, they are selling well, and we're very happy with how they turned out and hope, hope people can get their daily dose of nature from the calendars for the next year. Yeah. Um, and as far as other projects go, we're heading into the winter season now, so I'm just looking forward to all the different types of winter weather phenomena that we get on Lake Superior, whether it's the, the sea smoke or ice stacking or ice volcanoes. Um, it's it's just always fun when when those phenomena start happening. And recently, Lake Superior was a, it was just, or I don't know if you were out in camping or if you captured, there was the huge waves and quite a bit of damage there along the shore park there in Duluth. Yes, that was October 27th. We spent much of the day out taking photos and video, and those are actually on our on our website and on our YouTube channel and, and on Facebook. Um, but yeah, the, and typically the this velocity of winds that we had wouldn't have created so much destruction on the shoreline with the waves, except that the lake is at least 10 inches higher than normal for this time of year. Oh, wow. So when we did get the strong winds and waves coming off the lake, they they were magnified, basically, and did a lot of damage. It wiped out many sections of Lake Lock. Um, it wiped out the road that goes past Brighton Beach, which is where near where I shot the ice stacking viral video. Um, it did a lot of erosion on Park Point, which is a, a shoreline with sand dunes. Um, so, And that was our first winter storm of the season. It was very much like a like a November storm. Yes, I believe it was. I mean, normally that weather comes a little bit later for that area. Right. And Duluth itself has got a lot of pretty happening things for winter. Um, I noticed your photos of the lighted village. Is that new? Or how many years has that been going on there in Duluth? The, um, I think it's Bentleyville. The hol- the hol- yes, the holiday lights. Um, it's been in Duluth for the past, I'm not sure if it's been five years now, um, it started, it, the reason they call it Bentleyville, even though it's in Duluth. Yeah, is, that, that's confusing to me. <laughs> right, right. Um, there's a man named Nathan Bentley who lives in Esco, which is a, a town outside of Duluth, not too far. And he had he and his family had put up holiday lights at their home, which is in a wooded area. and People used to drive by and enjoy their holiday lights, and then he expanded Bentley or expanded his light display through the woods and allowed people to walk through on trails oh. and lights. And there ended up being so much public interest in seeing the lights that there were traffic jams and busloads of people out there. And um, several years ago, they agreed with the city of Duluth that they could put up the display for the community to enjoy down at Bayfront Festival Park, which is near the Duluth Harbor and Lake Superior. Um, so they they put up a great display, and I think it's grown every year. There's something like 4 million lights, and they oh, have this wow. massive metal-framed um, holiday tree with, I don't know how many lights are on, <gasps> on that tree alone. There must be a million lights on the tree. But it, it does this neat choreographed light display um, to holiday music. So it's it's pretty fun to see. People can actually walk through the display and 
they change where where different things are where different lights are located from year uh-huh. to year, so it's not the same every year. And I guess this year there are some new light decorations that Macy's had donated for Bentleyville. Oh, nice! Yeah, so it's a really really great community event, and people actually travel from quite a distance now to come and see it. I, I think so. Yeah, because I saw your photos on the internet too, and it it, it does it just makes. Yeah, if you live in the Midwest or if you live even further away, just a great destination for a winter, you know, a long winter weekend or mm-hmm. to see the city. And the bridge, too, the lift bridge, it looked like they changed the lights because I know you mentioned that. Um, the Let's see. They they don't change it during the holiday season. I think the lift bridge stays the same. But the white certain, color? Okay. Um, but there are certain special events. Uh, in October for breast cancer awareness, they have one night when the the bridge is lit in pink, um, and they they have other health related events like that. But my favorite is for the Fourth of July, for that one night they light oh. it in red, white, and blue. Oh, beautiful! Mm-hmm. Wow, it just sounds like it'd be a great place to go for the winter. Um, just be sure to to dress warm. <laughs> right. Yeah. The temperatures can get, how cold can it get in Duluth? It's been quite some time since I've been there in the winter, to be honest. Easily 20 below. I think reliably we hit 20 below each winter and sometimes colder. People might be surprised at what their camera can tolerate, but cameras can operate well beyond what the recommended operating temperature is from the manufacturer. Um, your batteries will drain faster, and eventually, if it's sub-zero and you're shooting for a couple hours, you might notice that some functionality stops on your camera. Like, maybe it doesn't want to autofocus anymore, or it's just acting kind of weird. So then I, I turn it off, pull out the battery, and let it rest for a while, warm it up in the bag. Right. Um, and then put a warm battery in it and turn it back on, and it's good to go again. Oh, Wow. But without pushing the limits on what the camera can tolerate, I think we've missed out on a lot of shoots, too. Oh, I agree. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much beauty to winter and being out and seeing nature in a different light, different sunrises and the different phenomena. But, mm-hmm. yeah, if you'd like to go to Duluth, <laughs> you, you want to plan to dress warm. You know, there's there's plenty of stores there, though, so you can stay in town and right, pick, up right. some, pick up some clothes. But, yeah, I think I think for people, people have to think, too, like, it's important to dress warm because, you know, once your body starts to get too cold, it's hard to be creative. Right, right. It is. It's hard to think straight yeah, exactly. when you're distracted by, by uh, painful appendages. Right, exactly. <laughs> painful fingers and toes and... But when you live in a place that hurts your face in the winter and freezes your nostrils shut, you just find ways to deal with it and and prevent those things. Right. Uh, I, if it's sub-zero, I'm typically wearing a full balaclava over my face, a, a full face mask with um, a neoprene to help block the wind. And that makes a huge difference. Oh, I bet that makes, yeah, just a huge difference. Yeah. Keeping your skin covered up. Yeah. As but much for as me, possible. style goes out the window when... When winter comes, I have to dress to be practical and make sure I stay warm and um, you know bring out the big pack boots and put heated inserts in if needed and just do what it takes so I can get outside and enjoy. Some special documentary projects with production crews from places like the, the Smithsonian and the Weather Channel 
and NHK in Japan. Um, oh my God! We can do special projects for um, magazine editors and or people that want something special on their wall to help connect them to nature and and fill their surroundings with the energy and beauty of nature. So we we enjoy doing commercial work, residential work. We do sales and licensing of our photos and videos, um, and then personal guiding um, for photo tours if people are interested. Yeah, I think that's important because a lot of times, um, and I always stress this with people when they're traveling, we we have, you know, many people if they're working, which most of us have to, obviously. Um, when you go to a spot and you're interested in photography, I always suggest it's best, and I, I do it myself, and that's how I met Don is contact a local person, a local photographer, because they're going to be able to take you to some of the best locations. If you communicate, you know, if you want something, you know, what your interests are and really open you to special places that you may not have been able to find on your own. Yeah, I think that's a good plan. Um, and the local photographer is going to know the area intimately. They'll know how the lighting is in certain areas at certain times of the day. Um, and can help you get some unique shots. Right. So if you want to con- uh, contact Dawn, go ahead and tell us um, your website and email address, best way to reach you. Sure. Our website is www.radiantspiritgallery.com. Folks can also find us on Facebook, on Instagram, and on YouTube. And our email address is info at radiantspiritgallery.com. Great. Well, do you have any other last words for um, those that are interested in improving their photography skills? Get outside and enjoy. Um, Explore new places. Get to know familiar places more intimately. And learn to work in all different kinds of light and in different seasons. And really um, stretch yourself, I think, from what you normally do in photography. Try new things. Experiment. Thank you so much, Dawn, for your time today. I really appreciate it. It was fun to talk to you again, and I so enjoyed going out and seeing Duluth at night and just the beauty of the city. It's an incredible place, and just I barely scratched the surface of Minnesota, so I encourage yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a beautiful state. Definitely. All right. Thank you, Dawn. Thanks for the opportunity to share my love of nature and photography with others. I appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time to listen to my podcast today. I hope you'll leave some feedback on iTunes. If there are locations that you're interested in hearing more about or specific types of photography or tips or tricks for winter, drop me an email at april at aprilart.com. I'll be posting more details about upcoming 2018 small group photography tours on eyesfortheroad.com and fallphototrips.com. So get your camera out, bundle up and get out and get some beautiful winter photographs wherever you are. Take care. Thanks.